Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six this evening. Today, US government slashes funding for UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Welfare Organisation for Palestinians in the Near East. The second part of the interview with Brian Terrell from Voices for Creative Nonviolence, reactions around Guantanamo Bay concentration camp. A tribute to the late Alan Roberts by friend and comrade Hall Greenland. New elections for Timor-Leste. Activist Peter Murphy will be telling us about that. Insurance and gene testing, they shouldn't go together. Coral Winter, research chemist who's now retired. And violence in Honduras, election fraud and resistance. With freelance journalist Sandra Cuff. One reaction to the US decision to reduce funding to the UN aid agency UNRWA was that it is a death sentence and will jeopardise the dignity and security of millions of Palestinian refugees. I spoke with Palestinian activist and presenter of 3CR's Palestinian program Palestine Remembered, Yusuf Al-Rimawi, and put it to him that any analysis of the situation regarding the future of UNRWA has to be preceded by the reasons for its very existence and that's in the full name the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees Relief and Work Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East Well thanks Jan for giving me the opportunity again to speak on your show We Palestinians refer to the UNRWA UNRWA United Nations Relief and Work Agency as the word for agency. So when you say the agency, it goes without saying that you mean the UNRWA, and we say the Arabic word for it, which is al-wakala. This is a proper noun in our uh, dictionary. Why? Because uh, ever since UNRWA started in 51 or 52, Palestinians had no form of aid whatsoever, neither from the international community nor on official levels from the Arab countries, but there has been a bit of one-off type of um, projects to help accommodate and feed the uh, Palestinians who were kicked out of their homes in 1948. So UNRWA has been playing a major role in our society, first uh, in providing uh, basic aid in form of food, and monthly uh, coupons, and then uh, in terms of education and health. I am now in the process of collecting stories from the 50s and 60s for a writing project, and um, the importance of the coupons was something like pretty much everything the people had at that stage. So it was just to keep you alive in terms of the monthly aid uh, coupons, something like a bit of milk, a bit of sugar, a bit of wheat. Sometimes, if you're lucky enough, you get blankets and winter clothing. 
and, and it's not systematic. So education and health is what remained, and it has been playing an important role in sustaining the Palestinian societies in refugee camps. So why it started? It started as a response to the flight of Palestinians in 48, estimated of more than 900,000 Palestinians. It was designed to just um, keep them alive until a political resolution comes uh, along, which never has happened. Can I just take you back a wee bit? What happened between 1948 and 1950? What happened to the people then? I'll give you an example of my own family. Uh, My grandfather, father of my father, became refugee as a result of the 48 uh, Nakba. When he uh, was kicked out from our home near Ramla city, uh, we are from a small town called Al-Majdal al-Sadiq, which is another uh, Majdal, uh, the famous Majdal. Uh, most people from most refugees in Gaza are from another Majdal, so we are talking about a smaller Majdal. Majdal in Canaanite language means the fortress. So the smaller fortress. So they fled uh, from Ramle to a village near Ramallah called Beit Rima, were named after that uh, Rimawis. And uh, they had to stay at their relatives' place. They gave them shelter, they gave them accommodation. Back then, the Palestinian society didn't have a system of renting. Uh, you can't rent. You either own property or you are homeless. Simple as that. So they became homeless and they were given shelter by their relatives in Beit Rima, but it was heavy on my grandfather to be at somebody else's place, even though they were nice, etc. But, you know, people can accept it for a few weeks, but if it goes beyond six months, it becomes a real big issue. So um, they had no uh, form of aid. They lost their job. My grandfather was an imam, a local imam. He was a marriage celebrant. He would get a bit of uh, fees for um, marriage celebrant. And sometimes uh, he would get other forms of fees uh, for religious duties. But uh, his main income was his land and uh, the the, the harvest of the land we had. And we lost all that. So he lost everything. And he became not only uh, homeless, but also unemployed and losing the source of income that he relied on. So they had to rely on on relatives and they had to uh, be given maybe help from friends and relatives. And uh, when they heard that UNRWA is going to start accommodating the refugees in other camps, my grandfather was one of the earliest to register his name and he was relocated to Jericho camp called Aqab Jabir and they moved in 51. And there he was able to start a new life found another job, became a teacher, teaching in Bedouin areas, and I'm following his footsteps now, teaching Arabic language as well. Well, they're the ones that remained within that area. What about the refugees who went to Lebanon, Jordan, Syria? What happened to them? Um, Thanks for this question. The 900,000 Palestinians who were kicked out from their homes in 1948 they went to several uh, geographical locations. It makes sense to stay in Palestine, in other places in Palestine, uh, like my grandfather, even though that we were, um, we became refugees again in 67, but that's another story. So let's stick to the 48. Others went on foot to Lebanon, and from Lebanon, some of them went on foot again 
to Syria, like, for example, my mother's family from Safad in the north. Others went to uh, by the sea to Egypt. Smaller uh, groups of them uh, were taken to Iraq, and I'm talking about just only 3,000 of them. And there is no border between Palestine and Iraq, and therefore they were taken by the returning Iraqi army in 48, and that 2,000 community started what we today call the Palestinian Iraqi community. But the majority of refugees were, were internally displaced in Palestine, West Bank, and Gaza, second uh, to Syria slash uh, Lebanon. Now, the second wave of refugees in 67 made the refugee become refugee again, and that's another story. Now, the agency doesn't actually police these refugee camps. They provide the money. They provide the employment. How does it work? They don't provide the money in in money forms. They provide aid in form of education and health. So uh, schooling. Uh, and I have to say my both parents are products of the Onurwa schools. Uh, had it not been for the Onurwa schools, illiteracy rate in Palestine would have been much higher. In fact, we are proud among Arab countries to, to be probably uh, to, to score the best literacy rate. And I have to give them credit to give the international community and UNRWA uh, credit. I mean, after the steadfastness of the Palestinian families and society and the importance they gave to education, they provide aid in form of education and health. But like you said, they were not, they're not policing. So in terms of law and order in the, inside the camps, it's the responsibility of the country these camps are in. For example, now we're talking about five geographical locations on our work camps. We're talking about West Bank. You have around 13 or 14 camps. I could be wrong in the numbers, uh, so I apologize if the numbers are not accurate. So you have, uh, let's say, 15 camps in West Bank, and you have similar number of camps in, uh, or a bit less, in Gaza. And you have also uh, a number of camps in Syria, in Jordan and uh, in uh, Lebanon. So five geographical locations, West Bank, Gaza and the three Arab countries. But there are other camps that are not recognized by UNRWA but still accommodate Palestinian refugees, i.e. the biggest camp, <laughs> which is Yarmouk, what used to be the capital of Palestinian uh, uh, diaspora, so, is yeah. not recognized or is not registered as an UNRWA but they do provide their services to it. So it's a little bit complicated, but their geographical locations are five. Number of camps are big, and it's a heavy responsibility on UNRWA to provide aid, especially in times of conflicts and disputes like we see in Syria and we've seen in Lebanon during the civil war. When you say a camp, what does it look like? It started with tents. I saw pictures of Badawi camps near uh, Badawi River in Lebanon, when they erected it, and it was literally uh, tents. Months later, they were allowed, uh, they were given permission to build. But um, let's let's go back to, let's leave the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon later because they have a unique situation. But uh, the camp I know, the Yarmouk camp, it used to be a vibrant neighborhood of Damascus. There was no borders, there was no fence, you know, that like uh, you enter the camp or uh, checkpoint or no. became part of Damascus. And uh, in fact, the, the main street in Yarmouk camp, the Lubia Street, it was named after a, a, a village in Palestine called Lubia. 
Why was it never registered? I think it was uh, because the Syrian government back then didn't allow the United Nations to register it and then it, it led into the situation. So it could be bureaucratic or uh, it's not a political reason. But by all means, the camps are not what you think. They are neighborhood and they are built buildings and constructions. However, I have to say that the the population inside the camp in 60 or 70 years, you can imagine if you allocate uh, one square kilometer to uh, three, 300 or 400 people, now they became 20,000 plus. You can imagine how it looks like. The problem is that in Lebanon, they were not given permits to build beyond the initial boundaries of the camps, and they are not even allowed to build vertically. So we're talking about a crisis, humanitarian crisis in terms of infrastructure, sewage, electricity, water, you just name it, overpopulated uh, neighborhood. And uh, the situation in Gaza, you add to it the occupation and then the siege and then the warfare. So we're talking about waves and waves and, cha- and, and layers and layers of injustices that the Palestinian refugees have witnessed over 70 years and now we're heading towards the 70th anniversary of Nakba. Has the funding to the agency increased as the populations have increased? Unfortunately, no. The funding in most of the times, uh, it has decreased actually. Now, how UNRWA uh, funds its operations is when the members of the United Nations, the countries, the governments, pay their annual fees. Now, and we've seen the Americans blackmailing the world and blackmailing the Palestinians. We're going to stop the funding uh, UNRWA if you don't come to negotiation table according to our terms. And uh, it it has happened on uh, numerous occasions. The uh, other things is that, in general, UN bodies are underfunded and uh, overburdened with uh, with responsibilities. So when we talk about funding, we always have problems, especially when it comes to operations like, for example, the UNRWA in Lebanon. Uh, they were anyway underfunded and overburdened, but then came 70 thousand more Palestinians from Syria and you can imagine what that had made them. So those camps are also relying on NGOs from other countries to come in and and bump up that money, the services, is that Um, correct? NGOs, uh, also uh, Palestinian political parties, PLO, there was an important agreement between PLO and the Lebanese government in 1969 whereby the Lebanese authorities allowed the policing of the camps to be a responsibility of PLO in return for maintaining law and order and not allowing Palestinian um, armed uh, groups to basically be outside the, the, the borders of the camp because before... Before 69, the situation of the Palestinian refugees in Lebanon was under the direct uh, rule of the police and the the Lebanese government, and there was uh, something like uh, military law applicable inside the camp, whereas there was uh, civil law uh, operating outside the camps. And there's a long list of injustices and, you know, for example, curfews and not allowing any gatherings and sometimes not allowing people to buy particular books or read newspaper publicly. So we're talking about military law. And then um, the situation of 
that changed since 1969. And of course, the Lebanese civil war, the Palestinian uh, factor was invited to the war and, and, and it complicated things for, for the people. But, but I have to say that the Palestinians in, in Lebanon have paid the heaviest price on so many levels. They have paid the heaviest price on revolutionary uh, level because they gave their blood uh, as part of the civil war and also they, they did not hesitate to support the Palestinian revolution with their uh, men and women and uh, in some cases children when men and women were taken uh, out of Lebanon in 82. And they also paid the heaviest price on humanitarian level because there is a long list of occupations that the Lebanese authorities prevent them to apply for, including doctors, nurses, and engineers. And they have paid the heaviest price when it comes to the services in terms of infrastructure, water, electricity, and sewage. So we can, we can go on and on. So we're talking about 400,000 Palestinians living in an inhumane condition, and it's just a shame. What's happening in Jordan? In Jordan, um, it's different. Currently, the, most of the refugees, most of the Palestinian refugees of Jordan are uh, citizens of Jordan. So, for example, my relatives in Hattin camp in uh, Amman, they are Jordanian citizens, and therefore they are eligible for public education or public uh, health care. The situation of the Jordanian-Palestinian relation changes with time. For example, before 67, there were, we didn't have this big number of Palestinians living in Jordan because West Bank was anyway under the Jordanian rule. After 67, we're talking about some of the internally displaced Palestinians from 48 who went to West Bank became refugees again in Jordan, like my family, others became internally displaced from West Bank to Jordan because it remained under the Jordanian umbrella. But the numbers of refugees increased from uh, a few thousands, from tens of thousands, to more than, you know, hundreds of thousands, nearly a million, uh, over a couple of uh, years. Now we're talking about the biggest population of Palestinians worldwide, more than one-third of the Palestinian population around the world don't live in West Bank, don't live in Gaza, don't live in, don't live in 48 areas, they live in Jordan. So more than one-third of the, Palestinian, the Palestinians, of people of Palestinian origin, are in Jordan. Now, the majority of them hold Jordanian passports, which means that they are citizens of Jordan. Now, being a citizen, it makes you less vulnerable to the injustices of being a refugee in that country. There has been issues of discrimination, I mean, but I don't want to be harsh on the Jordanian government because things have become much better. So if we talk about today's situation, it's excellent. There's no total equality because sometimes you can tell from the surname whether this, paper, this applicant is a Palestinian or Jordanian and therefore they can make it to this job or no, but it's just within particular government jobs. Apart from that, it's equality. So the situation of the Palestinians of Jordan have changed with time. They have seen really bad times, especially when PLO and Jordan clashed in 1970, what we call Black September. 
the 10 years after that was very bad. But uh, today, uh, in fact, the Palestinians of Jordan live in what I call equal rights with the Jordanian citizens. You mentioned before the funding is not adequate. What will the reduction in the U.S. contribution mean? U.S. government is one of the main donors. Uh, it's not donation, actually. I shouldn't say donors. It's, it's their uh, legal obligation. I think there is a war on UNRWA orchestrated by Netanyahu. And Netanyahu has convinced the current administration to play this card against, against the Palestinians. And it's a strategic objective for Israel to see the Palestinian camps go from bad to worse and to see Palestinians leave the camp. For example, it was a great news for Israel to see the, the, the more than 200,000 Palestinian refugees of Yarmouk leave Yarmouk due to the war. Some will say this is partly an Israeli job. Without having to prove that or no, it was a fantastic news for Netanyahu's government and for most of Israelis because when you have up to 300,000 Palestinians next-door neighbor and now they are scattered around the world, of course it's a good news for them. So um, the refugees... The camp or those who are eligible for UNRWA services are what we call the reservoir of our revolution. If there will be a change, a shift from the current situation to we go back to the first or second uh, intifada style resistance or something else, the refugee camps will be the first to respond more than the Palestinian towns or the Palestinians. I don't want to belittle the efforts of anyone, but it, it has always been the case. The Palestinian refugees inside the camps will be the first to rebel. This could be the devil's advocate. Could I say to you that the creation of the agency in one sense absolved the West for creating the state of Israel and also absolves or allows the continuation of the state of Israel? Uh, no, you're not being uh, the devil's advocate. That's 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 the case. I mean, it, the dissolving of the Palestinian camps or the dissolving of the Palestinian refugee issue. Now, they said that, you know, the Palestinian refugees problem, it made it from an issue to a problem, as if it is a problem. Yes, it is a problem to us, but it's not. It You made that problem, and the problem will immediately end if you allow them to return, and that's feasible. We can talk about how feasible it is later, but... The Israelis won't always to refer to the Palestinian issue as a problem, as a burden, as we don't have enough money, as the money is going to fund uh, uh, radical operations, uh, going to the wrong hands, as if education, like for example, I mean, it's just ridiculous to see how far they went in, in applying injustices against the Palestinian people. So... If that reservoir is no longer there or is not in form of, of camps, of course Israel will benefit from it because the right of return, and most Palestinians around the world are refugees, they are not in West Bank or in Gaza, and therefore they are not holders of the Palestinian Authority passports. So if that right of return is uh, diluted somehow, Israel will definitely benefit. So they think that, you know, the most pressing card to play is the honorable funding. But let me tell you that even if the United, even if the United States stop the funding, now we've seen Belgium 
has come to to the aid, Sweden has come to the aid. Other Arab countries are also putting their hands up. And I hope uh, also the Palestinians will find another umbrella whereby they can contribute directly to the UNRWA to continue their operations because it is a must. And I want to end with one thing that the UNRWA uh, Commissioner Director uh, Pierre said when he visited Canberra in 2015, December 2015, he came here to see if Australia can, you know, provide some money for UN, for UNRWA. I don't think he was successful, but he gave a lecture the night before he met our ministers. And he said at the beginning of his lecture that as we celebrate our 67th anniversary of starting uh, UNRWA, there's nothing to celebrate. It's not a happy occasion to celebrate the birthday of uh, UNRWA. And he asked the audience to just think of major events that has happened since 51 till 2015. And then people started coming up with the Korean War, the Vietnam War. And, you know, you can mention a long list of events that happened ever since UNRWA started even on Australian level, and then we've seen, you know, from white Australia to multiculturalism, Gough Whitlam, and, you know, I mean, we can can spend five minutes listing just important items that happened in the last 70 years. And within that turbulent and busy world, the only constant is that the Palestinians are still refugees. The Palestinians became refugees in 51, and then so many things happened, and the Palestinians remained refugees. This is the constant element in a turbulent ocean filled with variables. And that's not fair. And that's not something to celebrate. You have been listening to Yusuf Al-Rimawe, Palestinian activist and also one of the presenters of 3CR's Palestine program, Palestine Remembered, which is broadcast every Saturday morning from 9.30 until 10 o'clock. And you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR where the time is 26 minutes past 4 o'clock on a Tuesday. And now the final part of my interview with one of the co-coordinators of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, Brian Terrell. Talk a little bit about your demonstration where you dress up in orange suits similar to what the men in Guantanamo and the cups of tea with people's names on them. Yes, well, one thing Witness Against Torture does as a part of this week, we gather together and we fast and we have demonstrations in various places. Like I said, we went to the UAE embassy in our orange jumpsuits and we joined on the 11th, which is the anniversary of the opening of the prison at Guantanamo, the first prisoners arriving there in Lafayette Park across the street from the White House. There were 15 groups, and there were several hundred people at this rally, you know, with speakers and songs, and to be calling for the release of the, of the 41. So at the end of this, we had a ceremony, kind of a street theater ritual, kind of thing Witness Against Torture comes up with, and as we had people in orange jumpsuits and hoods lined up and as names were called, the names of the 41, each one lifted their hood and then accepted a cup of tea and took a sip of it and put it on the sidewalk, 
you know, the view of the White House. We use styrofoam cups because this is what you know, we've discovered from the lawyers who visit the people in Guantanamo is that they have very few ways of expression, but they're given tea in their cells every evening, and they have taken to uh, writing and drawing on the styrofoam cups, and it's something that has turned into a uh, security issue that those cups are then examined by intelligence officers and destroyed every day. So the United States authorities has a ritual, too. So we read the names and cup for each of the 40 with their name on it lying the sidewalk. And then five of us carrying banners, a banner uh, calling for the freeing of those 41 plus the thousands of men, women, and children in the U.S. Uh, immigration detention centers and the two million people who are in prison in the U.S. As, as with our hyper-incarceration rates. And we walk into Pennsylvania Avenue, the, the street that the White House is on, and we're immediately arrested by Secret Service agents and uh, taken off to a, to a police station uh, charged with crossing a police line. They put up the yellow police tape around the park, and they do this around the street. Now, I've been going to the White House to protest, unfortunately, every administration since Jimmy Carter's. And it used to be a very free and open place, and it's a place from which, in the past, for example, women fighting for the right to vote protested there. And then to end the Vietnam War, and before that, World War I veterans, uh, we have veterans of the United States, get benefits because starving war veterans protested in front of the White House. It's, it's been a history of being a public forum. And years ago, with each um, administration, that's been cut back to the point now where there's, there's no uh, vehicular traffic in front of the White House anymore. The pedestrian area is whenever there's the whiff of a demonstration, they put up this police tape and close off the uh, entire road to pedestrians. And so and the sidewalk now is bisected. There's about a 15-foot wide sidewalk, and then the iconic, iron fence in front of the White House, and now only half of that is open to the public, and not during what, for any demonstration, but for the tourists and others, and in front of the White House, apparently at all hours, there are now armed police officers with automatic weapons and Kevlar vests who are patrolling in front of the White House, and this is what tourists see now, is they go to Washington and see the President's house, and they see an armed camp. And also the, 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 the police authority there that used to be until President Trump was the uh, U.S. Park Police, who are a friendlier group of people, and their main job is finding lost kids and you know giving directions to tourists and things. And they've been replaced by the Secret Service, uniformed Secret Service officers who are uh, much stricter and... Uh, less friendly group of police officers, I think. Uh, so the, the, the security level is very, very high, and it's they really have strangled any attempt to make the president's house to be the public forum that, that it has historically been. So anyway, the four of us, the five of us were taken to a local police station, and after a few hours, the other four were released. 
But I was held over to see a judge the next day because apparently I have a warrant for my arrest in Las Vegas. And this is from protesting the uh, the, the uh, outside of Las Vegas, Creech Air Force Base is where the headquarters for the U.S. drone program, and I've been arrested there several times. And the last time in April, I was arrested uh, and charged with disturbing the peace. Very interesting charge. And the state of Nevada decided not to prosecute me, and so I have no real court case. But apparently the chief judge in Las Vegas was upset by that decision, and, and he wants me to come to court an answer to this charge, even though the charge doesn't exist, and the state of Nevada has informed me that they're not interested in this at all, and you know there's legally nothing the judge can do to me without the state charging me. But anyway, I've got this this warrant that the um, Secret Service decided they would hold me over for possible extradition to Nevada as a fugitive from justice. <laughs> I had the opportunity to spend the night in Central Cell Block in Washington, D.C., and then to go through a maze of cells between the cell block and the, and the court before the judge decided that, that the uh, charges would not be the, the, the um, crossing a police line charge from the park in front of the White House was not going to be charged either. So I was released before going before the judge, but I understand that government was ready to ask the judge to hold me over for possible extradition to Nevada. But I had a, it was an interesting night. I've been through this before in Washington, D.C., only with other people. And I, this time I went through it by myself. And Central Cell Block is where they gather people from all the police stations in the city. People are arrested for any crime, big or small, and they're going to be held overnight to see the judge. It's often a police officer's discretion whether to take someone to jail or just issue them a summons to come to court on, a, on a, another date. So there were some 90 of us, and uh, I was the only white person that they decided to, that had been decided to be held overnight. So and I think this bears out the statistics in the United States about who's, who is in our prisons. What were the conditions oh, it like? Was, it was filthy. The, the, the uh, temperature was about, it was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, I'm sure. And this is the middle of very, winter? Very, very hot. Middle of winter. It's a, uh, you know, just like an oven. It was and, you know, crowded and noisy. There's no bedding on the bunk. I was in a, in a cell with a, with a sheet of metal to, to lay down on, and I saw what I thought might be bed bugs crawling around on that sheet of metal, and I was relieved when I found out that they were just newly hatched cockroaches. So at least they weren't going to suck my blood while I while I slept. So it was a night of very very little sleep, and the other prisoners were all very very noisy, but they were all, I think, uh, pretty considerate of e- considerate of each other. And then spending like uh, eight hours in chains and shackles being moved around to different places before getting getting us into the into the courtrooms. It's, it was kind of an ir- irony that I think we witness against torture vigil. We we fast for this time. It was five days, and sometimes it's as as much as as twelve. But we do this in solidarity with the 
men, many of the men who are at Guantanamo are on hunger strikes and being, being force-fed, which is another form of torture, the way they do it. I always thought it was at least spending a few hours in lockup kind of gives us a sense of solidarity as well. It's a small thing, even being overnight in that uh, in central cell block and it's had a horrible place. Uh, it's still a small thing compared to Guantanamo and the secret prisons in Yemen. But it all comes of the same thing. It's, it's even the fact of my the shady circumstances around the fact I was kept in jail is because of a government agencies and judicial misconduct that uh, the rule of law really is not is not being adhered to. That this is it's an abuse of power. It's abuse of power that, that keeps so many young black men in, in our prisons. It's all of a piece, and it has to be resisted on lots of levels. And also a message to people like you, Brian. If you want to protest, well, you'll pay the price. Oh, yeah. That definitely is true. You know, that needs to be resisted as well. I mean, we can't allow ourselves to be bullied and threatened into silence. We just need more people to do it. (laughs) And that's veteran peace and anti-war activist Brian Tyrrell from Voices for Creative Nonviolence and Witness Against Torture. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. As activist Peter Murphy predicted on the program last week, the six-month-old government in Timor-Leste has fallen... The parliament has been dissolved and fresh elections are expected in coming months. Peter is back to explain what happened last Friday and the prospects for the near future for Timor-Leste. It seems that uh, the president, Luolo, consulted various groups and then officially the Council of State in the end through last week to, I think, again demonstrate that uh, he had thoroughly consulted all parties involved in the parliament and in the government and declared that there was an impasse or a deadlock in the uh, operation of government itself in Timor Leste and that disappointing as it was the uh, decision about the government really is up to the people so uh, it was necessary to uh, return to the people for another election the president of Timor Leste Luolo last Friday Uh, made a declaration formally that Parliament is dissolved and at the end of the statement it said that the date of the election will be set according to the Constitution and the law. I'm expecting a statement yesterday, today, tomorrow about the timetable for the election but the Constitution says that it must take place within 60 days of the dissolution of Parliament in in, in a case like this, uh, not the regular five-year term of Parliament. 
January 26 was last Friday. I think March 26 is the, the last day on which the election would have to take place. Just explain once more, Peter, why it's got to this stage. It's pretty hard to explain it, Jan, actually. The technical side of it is pretty clear. The uh, election last year produced uh, a situation where the Fretland Party had a slight uh, edge uh, in votes over the CNRT party. So it was, uh, according to the Constitution, asked to try to form a government. And uh, initially it called for a inclusive government to continue the sort of work that had been done under the previous government since 2015. The first party that decided to work with Fredland for that was uh, People's Liberation Party, a new party represented in the parliament. And another party that just got seats in the parliament for the first time, a youth party called Kunto. The, uh, this would have provided uh, such a government with a, a working majority in the parliament. But uh, this was uh, somehow changed and uh, it's really hard to see the manoeuvring that happened. But right at the, the end, just before the f- formal announcement of a, a new government, the People's Liberation Party pulled out. They entered into an alliance with CNRT. And then on the day, I think, that uh, the new uh, government was to be declared, this time with the support of the Democratic Party and Kunto, then Kunto pulled out. It's only got a few seats in the parliament, but uh, this was uh, enough to ensure that the, the incoming government was a minority government. It had 30 votes out of 65 in the parliament and therefore the non-government parties had had a majority of 35. From then on, it was all downhill in the sense that no serious steps were taken by the parliament. Before the formation of the government, the parliament had had an election for what we would call the speaker. They call it the president of the parliament, and it was a Fredlin person who was elected as the president of the parliament. So that was the only substantive thing I think that the parliament achieved. And uh, following the formation of the government, it has to present a program to the parliament to be endorsed. That's a requirement of the constitution. Uh, The program was put forward, which I think was quite uncontroversial. It was realigning some priorities, but only uh, in the progressive sense that they were boosting education and health and some economic development spending. This program was rejected by the parliament, by the 35. If it's rejected a second time, that's a trigger for the president to dissolve the parliament. Government decided not to present a second time, but to go on a sort of education campaign among the people about why this was happening, what was really uh, at stake here. Instead, the next thing they did was to present a budget. This is also a requirement in the Constitution, and uh, the budget was also rejected. So this uh, is not quite stopping the spending of the government, but once that happens, the uh, government must revert to simply using the previous year's budget, one-twelfth, of it per month so that there could be no increase in the budget but also it can't be spent on anything else except the programs of the previous year and since some of those programs have been completed or uh, a long way through their process then uh, there really is no point in that spending so things slow down and there's no change this was going on through December and uh, into January then the uh, 
opposition parties decided to try to remove the president of the parliament and that was a sort of a legal battle in the end in the courts at the time last week when the president uh, made his declaration. In all the speeches in the parliament there was no substantive criticism of the program or the budget put forward by those who voted them down. They really just voted them down for really fairly crude political motives. They decided that they'd made a mistake in allowing the Fretland to form a government and they wanted to bring it down. In a way, they have brought, brought uh, the parliament to an end, but in these circumstances now, the caretaker government continues to be the, the one formed by Fretland um, in November last year. In the background, is it a case of personalities putting themselves above the people? Since September last year, one of the important national figures, Shanana Guzmao, has been overseas. He hasn't actually come back to Timor even now. He's earned himself the, the nickname, a new nickname of remote control among the people. I think it's clear to most people in Timor that he has been the, the hand behind the scenes making the phone calls and pushing people to stop cooperating with Fretlin and so on. What is the motivation for him? Uh, I don't really know because he's not articulating anything. But uh, in parallel to all of this stuff to do with the elections last year and the formation of a government, there's been the ongoing negotiations in Brussels and other cities about the seabed border between Timor-Leste and Australia and associated with that a revenue-sharing agreement about the development of the Greater Sunrise Gas and Oil Field. Janana Gushmao has been the leader of the negotiating team through all this period and up till now. And there's been a series of uh, media releases from the International Court of Justice to update. And, and through September and October and November, these were saying, yes, Australia and um, Timor-Leste have come to an agreement about a fair uh, seabed boundary. And the details will be issued in you know, another month or so, but every month passes and they, this deadline is pushed back. And then the focus was more on the greater sunrise. And again, the details of this agreement are apparently worked out, but they haven't apparently been, well, they definitely haven't been uh, released publicly. The oil revenue, the gas revenue really, and the uh, national sovereignty issues around the border are a factor in what's happening, but they're not being deployed or, you know, articulated at all. So they're just in the background. So I'm, I'm guessing that, that initially, Shanana Guzmao thought he was on a real winner with the seabed boundary and uh, then the, the gas revenue agreement probably hasn't turned out as good as he expected. So he's wanting to have an election. He's wanting to have himself sort of reaffirmed as the national hero by these victories, but the details of the victories aren't, aren't available. And they probably won't be now um, until very close to Election Day. In, and it may, they may not really be available by Election Day. So now, you know, whereas initially people would thought, oh, well, you know, this is uh, really what's behind the manoeuvring that Janana has uh, apparently been doing. And now it's sort of swung to he doesn't want to release these details because they're not so good and he won't look so good. He'd rather have the election. But whatever way you, you try to interpret it, you'd have to say the most likely explanation for what's happened is that Shanana Guzmao wants to be the Prime Minister again, even though he 
he held this position up till you know February 2015 for several years, and he he voluntarily resigned it, and he resigned it, saying that he he had made a bit of a mess of it, and he didn't want that to be his legacy, and he wanted other players, including the Fretland, to help contribute to fixing up really bad outcomes uh, under his previous government. You know, it's not looking good in terms of good governance in, in Timor-Leste that this is the sort of impasse that it's, they've come to now. But it's certainly a hope that a new election will overcome, you know, will, find, will mean there'll be a way found through to get a viable, capable and, and progressive government back to work in Timor-Leste. Thank you for that explanation, Peter, and we wait. Yes, and can, is there a bit more time? Perhaps there's you know, a little speculation now about what could happen in the election because you know, there's some fatalistic sort of assessments that the voters will just vote just like they did in July last year and that the percentages will come out roughly the same for the parties and therefore uh, the next government would have to be a CNRT government. But it's, um, first of all, not clear that the percentages would be the same because it seems that public opinion in Timor is rather frustrated at what's taken place and that the blame is being placed on the opposition, not on the government. So there could be a shift in the votes. Also, uh, the absence of Shanana Gusmao for such a long time, it's not happened since uh, independence. You know, that's another factor which could, could alter the perception of CNRT. It's also obvious that um, the, the smaller parties in the parliament are very much opportunistic. They'll do one thing this week and then the next week they could say the opposite. So no one can really predict, I think, what alliances might happen after an election. Um, and there may well be new alliances formed prior to the election. So that when it comes to saying, well, who got the most votes, it could be Fretland Plus in a, in a formal alliance got the most votes or CNRT Plus some other parties in a formal alliance got the most votes. We have to see how the parties position themselves and, and make alliances in this next couple of weeks, I think, to get a better picture of what might happen. Thank you, Peter. Okay, Jan. I think we're going to have to wait till March to find out what's really happening in Timor-Leste. That was Peter Murphy, who's a human rights and trade union activist in Sydney. And this is 3CR, and you're listening to Tuesday Home Time on 855am on digital 3CR on computer 3cr.org.au. Streaming or podcast. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. I'm speaking now with Sydney writer and activist Hall Greenland about his late friend, Dr. Alan Roberts. Hall, in your obituary for Alan, you wrote, quote, I believe that Dr. Alan Roberts, who passed away last December, has as good as anyone to be remembered as Australia's first ecologist. How do you substantiate that assessment? In the late 60s and into the 70s, the environment movement 
did begin and did begin to make a mark in Australia. But we were dealing with symptoms, whether it was overdevelopment in the city or the ruination of Lake Pedder, you know, or the, the attacks on native forests and so on. But nobody was actually looking at the system or the deeper social and economic and cultural forces that made the society we live in so destructive uh, and dangerous as far as the living environment is concerned. What Alan did in a series of essays in the 1970s was to look at the social origins of the environmental crisis that we uh, face. And his book, The Self-Managing Environment, was published in London and New York in 1979, which collected those essays. So I think Alan is our equivalent to, you know, the Murray Bookchins and Rachel Carsons and Theodore Rozak's, the, the, the Americans who did the same kind of thinking, the same kind of an analysing as Alan did in the 1970s. Can you talk a little bit about what he did come up with from those analyses? Well, yeah. For Alan, it was, you know, obviously the dangerous uh, thing about capitalism was that it continued, you know, unlimited production of, of goods, of com commodities. You know, it was a system of production for production's sake, you know, driven by the bottom line for which environmental kind of um, uh, dangers or restrictions had very little meaning. And so he did accept that. But he also accepted that this overproduction, if you like, this consumerism, was driven by the lust for goods, for things, uh, amongst uh, workers in advanced capitalist countries. That the consumerism wasn't just driven by production, but was driven by consumption needs. He acknowledged that those needs or those wants or desires were a lot manufactured or whipped up by the advertising industry, but they took hold, as far as Alan was concerned, this lust for consumerism because workers felt alienated. And as a compensation for their alienation, they accepted things, they accepted consumer goods. And that if we could zero in on alienation, if we could have a society in which people had much more say and life was much more meaningful and they were in charge of things and had plenty of options as well as increased free time and so on, then we would start to get to a system where consumerism was uh, undermined and it would no longer have the fatal attraction it seemed to have for a working class that was powerless and alienated and shut out of a real say in uh, the kind of lives people led. When he was writing those essays, were people listening? Oh yes, people were listening. I remember publishing one of those essays in a small magazine that I was helping publish at the time, International uh, was the name of the magazine, and we would be lucky to distribute, you know, 150, 200 copies of it. Uh, this was in the mid-1970s. But when we brought out a special issue on consumerism and the environmental crisis, I remember our circulation went up tenfold. We got rid of more than 2,000 copies. People picked it up and read it and, you know, I think it had, you know, an impact and, you know, it, it, I think it helped contributed to the growth of you know, critical social ecological thought in Australia and was one of the contributors to the formation of the Greens in the 1980s. And, of course, even today people say that the problem for the world is population, but he identified the other, didn't he, that it wasn't just population, it was, as you just yeah, said, I mean, it was... The, pop the, the population argument is, 
is very weak because the places where you know the so-called overpopulation is occurring, they hardly you know make any impact as far as uh, carbon emissions are concerned. It's it's in the in the rich countries where you know the birth rate is you know is way down that you know make the big contribution as far as cooking the planet is concerned. And besides, you know the population increase is definitely slowing. Fifty years ago, the average number of births for women in you know in childbearing ages was six. Now it's down to less than two and a half. So Alan was very dubious about uh, you know zeroing in on population as a driver. He much much more um, concerned with the with the economy and with the style of life people were leading. And he lived like he preached, didn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, partly that was he was a you know he was a depression kid. He was born in 1925, and so. You know, he he grew up in a kind of abstemious, ascetic kind of life, but he was never one for conspicuous consumption. Uh, quite and, the opposite. You know, oh, quite the opposite. Yeah, I mean, as I said in the obit, uh, uh, you know, in his kitchen he'd have office chairs that he'd picked up in, um, in laneways and so on that had been thrown out on casters so he could roll around his kitchen and so on. No, no, he was he was eccentric and he was you know a recycler and. Uh, and somebody who left a small footprint uh, on the earth, just because you know his 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 wants weren't um, you know weren't manufactured by the advertising industry. He valued his free time. He had other interests. Uh, he had a you know great job being at the university and so on. So he had other satisfactions. So he realised he was privileged in that way. But he saw that the spreading of those benefits to the rest of the population, having a say and in doing interesting work, were kinds of ways to. Uh, ameliorate any kind of lust for, uh, you know, for the accumulation of goods and and so on. And what was his life at Monash? Well, he went to Monash in 1966 in the uh, physics department there. Uh, He was a senior lecturer in physics until he retired in 1992, although he kept, you know, kept uh, contacts with Monash and would, you know, make guest appearances, giving lectures and tutorials and seminars and so on. I don't want to give the impression that he only did, uh, you know, political, social kind of analysis. He taught environmental science, and he's also an international authority in, you know, mathematical modelling of ecological problems and so on. So he was political, but he was also something of a scientist as well. And I suppose in one sense he was lucky to be able to go to university because, as you said, he was a child of the Depression, but... Because he joined the armed forces during World War, he got that opportunity to go to university afterwards. That's right. World War Two. After World War Two, the Commonwealth government offered return um, uh, service people uh, a chance to go to uh, university, and Alan eventually took that up. And he was, you know, he's a he's a bright bloke, and um, so you know, he did his university degree and 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 um, did a masters and got offered a job by Harry Messel, although. Asia, of course, tried to stop him getting that job, but uh, Harry Messel, a flamboyant American uh, professor in charge of the physics department at Sydney University, wouldn't hear of political interference in his department, and so Alan got the job, and, and, and you know, it became an academic for the rest of his life. He, you know, he'd been, he left school at 14, in fact, and gone to work in factories, so, you know, he was really kind of a, a working-class boy made good, there's no doubt about that. I'd imagine he would have had a fairly substantial ASIO file. Yes, I think he had a substantial ASIO file because, I mean, he, you know, he was also the leading critic of um, 
of the nuclear uh, industry in Australia, whether it was uranium mining or you know mad schemes to develop the bomb or nuclear power or whatever. Allen, uh, you know, was the you know, was the authority that people relied on in uh, bursting, you know, busting the so-called scientific or intellectual arguments in favour of those um, those projects. And to a large extent, he was very, very, um, you know, very, very successful. He was one of the co-founders of the campaign for nuclear disarmament here. That's right. That's right. And he was, you know, he's active against uranium mining. And uh, the last pamphlet he wrote, you know, ten years ago called the phantom solution uh which was a you know which was a critique of people's advocacy of setting up nuclear power and its so-called you know advantages in combating climate change and so on so yeah he i mean he was a nuclear physicist by training and so you know he was across you know the, the most advanced thinking and research being done on, on on nuclear questions apart from the environmentalist you mentioned before who were the other influences on his life view well, I mean, I, he always said that he became a socialist uh, on a troop ship going up to Borneo from Australia in 1944 when he went to the library on the, on the, on the boat and found a copy of George Bernard Shaw's uh, The Intelligent Woman's Guide to Socialism. And he said he read that from cover to cover and it convinced him to be a socialist. He had no, I'd never had any uh, reason to doubt uh, the validity of most of George Bernard Shaw's arguments. And he was in the Communist Party up until the, uh, Hung you know, the Hungary Revolution in 1956. And then he became, you know, a Trotskyist and a critical Marxist after that and was involved in the Labour Party and, uh, in the, in the Greens. And, you know, he, Alan was somebody who was, you know, always up to date about uh, what was being written and said overseas. And so, you know, there were a lot of people like, you know, Michelle Pablo or Murray Bookchin or, you know, or the, the, the you know, the kind of uh, early uh, ecological thinkers in the United States. And, you know, people like Marcuse and Foucault and so on. People, he, he did, I mean, he didn't accept any of these people uncritically. Noam Chomsky, I mean, they were people he read and appreciated. Perry Anderson, uh, you know, one of the founders of the New Left Review, um, probably the you know, most outstanding British Marxists of his generation. All those people Alan read and Alan enjoyed and uh, enjoyed the kind of, you know, the critical but admiring tussle with their ideas and their theories. Did he travel? Well, did he travel? Um, he, tr he made two big trips, one to Paris in the early 1970s where he worked with um, uh, Jean-Paul Vigier, a, a French physicist on practical um, proof of Einstein's uh, theory of relativity they came up with a with a proof that it didn't it wasn't sustainable uh, but nevertheless it did cause a stir at the time and he went to uh, University of uh, California in San Diego in the early 1980s as well for another sabbatical year but yeah that, those were his big trips as far as I know they were his only trips overseas as well besides his wartime experiences in Borneo and Malaya. What about China? Oh, sorry, yes, yes, thanks for reminding me. He did go to China in 1966 at the start of the, uh, the Cultural Revolution. He was actually in the same room as Mao, Chairman Mao at one stage, and he was not a Maoist by any stretch of imagination, despite the fact that he was at, um, he was at Monash University, which was a centre of uh, political Maoism in Australia. Uh, in fact, he was a critic of 
uh, Mao and the Cultural Revolution, which he saw as a violent factional struggle. He, he didn't um, he didn't fall for it as some kind of revolutionary movement from below. Though, and he wrote about that, you know, in late 1966 when he returned from China. And you know, while he you know maintained good comradely relations with a lot of the Maoists, uh, he was always a critic of uh, of their politics and of, of Maoism. What about connections with the the union movement? He was president of the staff association in the 1980s in at Monash University and tussled with the emerging neoliberal you know management of of Monash University. But and you know he, when the uh, big 1998 uh, struggle on the wharves was going on with the MUA. He was uh, on the picket lines and so on. So he was, you know, and he was in the Labor Party for a while as well. I mean, he was a good unionist and a, and a solid uh, supporter of the, of, the, of, the, of the union movement. And the Green Bands and the BLF? Yeah, well, ex- exactly. His book, um, his book is dedicated to um, Jack Mundy and the, and the BLF, the self-managing environment. He's got a terrific analysis of the um, uh, of the green bands in that book. Probably the, in my opinion, the best analysis of the green bands that I've seen. So yes, he's a he's definitely a man of the left, a man of the working class, a man of science. You know, a radical, you know, utopian thinker. And what did he do for his time when he wasn't working and thinking? Well, he spent most of his that free time, uh, certainly in his latter twenty years or twenty five years with his dogs. Uh, he had a series of um, companion, companions of the, of the canine uh, variety and he really loved his dogs and he loved people, meeting people and learning about other dogs and so on. He actually agitated uh, to get a dog park uh, in an area opposite where he, where he lived quite successfully and defended it successfully against attempts to close it down and so on, a dog exercise park. Oh, he played tennis as well, of course. So, yeah, he was, a, he was an interesting bloke in so many ways, Alan. And what was your main connection with him? Well, I went to university in 1962 and I went to a ALP club meeting and Alan was at that meeting and spoke on a couple of issues and um, I, was, I was mightily impressed because uh, he was a very eloquent and very intel- intelligent and dazzling uh, speaker. Uh, and, you know, I was, a, you know, from a Labor family, working class family, went to university. I was looking for inspiration, you know, radical inspiration, and Alan provided it. So he became a kind of mentor and comrade of mine for, you know, from 1962 onwards. And I rarely had uh, any reason to uh, disagree with him on, on, on any major issue. And, yeah, we were, we were comrades and, and mates. From, from then on. And you'll be in Melbourne on the 3rd of February? I certainly will be on the 3rd of February at the at Griffin Hall at 3 o'clock on, in Melbourne University. So, yeah, and there's a half a dozen people speaking for five to seven minutes, I believe, and uh, there'll be videos and photos and, and, and food and drink, and, you know, it'll be a, a real celebration of a, of a worthwhile life, I think. And I'd imagine for those five people it'd be difficult to keep it to five to seven minutes too. Yeah, that's right. They'll all be speaking about different parts of uh, Alan's, different aspects of Alan's life. So we've all been told seven minutes. Uh, I'll be kicking off, but I'll certainly be trying to keep to my seven minutes because I'll be curious to hear what the other half dozen speakers have to say. Lovely. Thank you, Hall. Thank you, Jan. And that was Hall 
Greenland, speaking about his friend, activist, his mentor, Dr. Alan Roberts, who was also a great friend of 3CR. And the commemoration will be this Saturday at Melbourne University. Griffin Hall, I'm not quite sure where Griffin Hall is, but I dare say I will find it. And it's at 3 o'clock this Saturday, the 3rd of February, remembering and commemorating the great life of Dr. Brian, Dr. Alan Roberts, I apologise, Dr. Alan Roberts. Communities of Sound is a 3CR curated lineup of summer afternoon performances showcasing treaty, creative women and diverse cultures. Join us at the Fairfield Amphitheatre on Sunday, February 18th between 5 and 7.30 p.m. to enjoy live performances from Kucha Edwards, Tando, the West Papuan Band, Sweet Dreams, Manisha Njali, June Jones and Danny Sib. Pack a picnic to share with friends and family or grab a tasty bite and bevy from the 3CR food store. That's Sunday, 18th of February, 5 till 7.30 p.m. at the Fairfield Amphitheatre. For further details, call 94198377 or check out our website at 3cr.org.au. Presented as part of the City of Yarra's Fairfield and Feb series alongside Play On and Melbourne Ukulele Collective. The city. Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. I've, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Canada and Britain have protected consumers by resisting or banning the use of genetic information from insurance companies. Not so here in Australia, and there are calls to support an immediate ban on the use of genetic test results in insurance. To find out more, I'm speaking with retired research chemist and Green Left Weekly author Coral Winter. First, Coral, explain in broad terms what genetic testing involves. A genetic testing is usually instigated when a member of your family has died from a disease which is known to be caused by uh, a mutation. So it's a good idea that all the members of the immediate family get tested for this, this if they carry the same mutation. It, it's only 5 to 10% of cancers are caused by a inherited gene mutation, but that means you can save those people who do carry that mutation if one of the families are followed through and um, there's a genetic testing, maybe perhaps every year, of the children who have inherited that mutation. So you're just talking about cancer? Well, at the moment, I'm just talking on cancer. That's, that's the one that... Well, cancer's been the, the most researched for genetic testing, the, the, the mutations that cause a cancer. But there are other diseases, of course, that also cause another disease, Huntington's chorea, which causes dementia very early on. There's quite a few now, but um, I suppose the most common one is testing, genetic testing for cancer. 
but there are many other diseases that are also now they know the mutation that can cause it. Explain how the insurance companies become involved. Well, what's happened is the insurance companies in Australia can ask that you give any information that you have on genetic testing or if you've had any uh, tests done for genetic reasons and, and you have to disclose that information or they will not, they can then refuse to give you payout insurance if you haven't revealed that information. It's mandatory that you reveal that information if you've had any genetic testing done um, for them to give you life insurance or disability insurance or even when you try and get insurance for unemployment. And when did this ruling come in? Well, it's been there forever, um, I think, because the Australian government has allowed the insurance industry to regulate themselves. There's no overseer of that. It's done through the Financial Services Council. And so they can demand that you release, give them any of this genetic data. And there's an obvious conflict of interest. And the FSC, it's even got worse in the last period because the Financial Services Council has updated its genetic testing policy to suggest that the insurance companies even ask you if applicants are considering having a genetic test, which is worse, which means they won't give you any insurance until the results of that genetic testing come in. Does that mean that people are being deterred from having the test? Yes, it does. It means that um, if you know that there's a possibility that you won't get life insurance or a woman has even refused travel insurance because it's considered a precondition, a, a, you know, sort of a, 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 um, pre, a, an earlier condition that you've got and uh, they increased all the premiums as well. So it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a horrible, terrible situation which doesn't apply in Europe it must um, discriminate against people even though they're not going to die of that cancer. Can you explain the case that you've got? Well, the situation is what happened is one young man early in his early 20s had genetic testing done because his mother had died of a um, bowel cancer and he um, had, was tested for the mutation that she carried, which is in a DNA, DNA repair enzyme. In, uh, and it's called Lynch syndrome. I know this situation because I've worked for 15 years in cancer research, in inherited cancer research in colon. So I know these genes, you know, well. And so then he, because of that finding, all you have to do, he was a scientist, so he knew what the situation was. And what you have to do is have a, a colon, colonoscopy every year to detect, like, the earlier forms of a polyp. And um, they will just burn them, take you know, destroy them, and, and you're fine. So what happened was um, he knew of the situation and knew that his risk, because he knew he had the mutation in it, and the, the risk was absolutely reduced to just normal uh, um, situation because he was going to have the test every year. Now, the insurance company have no experts or no, don't take it to any committee to decide, to understand to a doctors or to any experts to work out what is the risk because they just re and they just refused him insurance coverage so he had to take the insurance company to the um, human rights commission to demand to get uh, access to um, life insurance 
And what happened? So, well, he won. He won the case. But if you didn't know the situation, he was, you know, because of his son's background, he knew that there was no risk of all risk at all because he was ha- uh, having a test, a colonoscopy every year. Yeah, so he won the case, and and uh, another insurance company gave him coverage. But fancy, you know, no one, no ordinary person is going to know all the ins and outs of the genetic testing and which genes are at risk and how, um, what what your risk assessment is, and wouldn't have the confidence to take it to a human rights commission, and also you need the money to do that as well. So that's, you know, this is an absurd situation. Have you got some other examples? Yes, a woman who also had Lynch syndrome, the same one, she was refused um, life insurance by six companies. And another woman who had a mutation in the BRCA gene, mutation, that's the one that causes breast cancer, a higher risk of breast cancer. But she had both breasts removed to reduce her risk. And so the, that was a significant risk reduction but it was not taken into account by the insurance company because they don't have any committee that overlooks this. And so she was refused coverage for um, critical illness and also death coverage. I don't think the insurance companies should have any access to people's genetic information. Well, you know, what, this isn't right. Well, where does privacy come into this? Well, there's no privacy at all, is there? But we should look at the example of what's happening in Europe because... Both Canada and Britain have protected consumers by restricting or banning the use of genetic information for insurance altogether. In Britain, they put a moratorium in 2001 banning any um, insurance um, company asking for genetic information. That's fair. You know, they have no right to this to this um, privacy, this information on on genetic you know, estimates of, of um, people's diseases. And, and obviously, as we do more genetic testing for diseases, there's going to be more and more people who will be discovered as, as having a um, genetic mutation that may cause the disease. And obviously, the insurance companies in those countries haven't gone broke? No. <laughs> and this happened in 2001, like 18 years ago. I mean, where is Australia? I mean, where, how far behind are we? But, and the other implication of this, as you asked Kay earlier, I didn't answer the question, was that this will stop people from getting genetic testing done. Uh, and that means people who can take precautions, if they know that they're carrying a mutation of their disease, will take precautions and reduce their risk and make sure they do test so they don't end up with this disease. But that will stop people doing that if they know that they won't be able to get uh, life insurance. And so, and the second implication of this is that there will be fewer and fewer people volunteering for donating their tissues for research. You know, and that was absolutely essential when I was doing research in the hospital. That you needed people to donate a small sample of their tumour um, or blood sample to test for genetic diseases to be able to carry out further research. Now, if they if this implication of the insurance companies and the way they operate, that will reduce the number of volunteers. It means the research is more and more difficult to do. What has been done to force Australia to be in line with the other countries? Well, they're not doing anything. It's got worse, you know, with the Financial Services Council, which overlooks the 
insurance industry, which is, you know, regulated by themselves, they've made it worse. But, you know, I should point out, you know, other European companies, Belgium, Austria, Denmark, France, Germany, Lithuania even, Norway, Portugal and Sweden have implemented outright bans on genetic testing asking for those details by insurance companies in accordance with the Council of um, European Human Rights Convention. And that's the action we have to take and we have to argue and fight with that position in Australia. The insurance companies should not have access to any of the details of genetic testing of any individual. And who are those who are supporting this? Well, I don't know. You know, it has to be sort of a movement by doctors and also research clinicians and researchers in the hospitals and in other areas, and maybe the general public, to argue, to fight for this because it's a really important issue if these people are denied life insurance or, you know, you have to pay absurd premium loadings and um, other uh, costs or or you can't get coverage at all. You know, I'm not sure the general public are aware of this situation, but we we have to become more informed and, and fight the insurance companies on this issue and the Australian government for allowing this situation to occur. And it seems, Carol, that the examples you're given, these three people, that the insurance companies are getting an absolute free ride. Oh, yeah, they're getting away with it. And I'm sure that, I mean, this is just three cases I came across in the newspapers and um, on television on a news item, but... I'm sure there are probably dozens of cases where people have been refused coverage or, yeah, especially for life insurance if you want to cover a genetic, have a genetic um, propensity. But, yes, this has got to be um, tackled by the general public, I think, once they are aware of this situation. And the doctors should also argue against this being allowed to continue. What would be a first step for a grassroots person to protest against this? Well, I think the Financial Services Council is still meeting on the... Um, there's a whole lot of scandals over insurance, particularly over travel insurance um, and all sorts of different insurance because they put all these clauses in, in a fine print about size two, you can't even see it. Um, and when you go to claim insurance, you don't realise that most of the normal conditions that you'll come across are eliminated. So there's a whole investigation, I think, at the moment being carried out by the, the government over the insurance industry and, and by the ombudsman as well about the anomalies in the insurance company because this obviously self-regulation doesn't work. They can write all the conditions they like just to suit themselves and to make as much profit as, as, they, as they wish. So maybe the first step if somebody comes across this issue is to go to the ombudsman that... Um, I think, yeah, this situation really has to be challenged because the insurance company's getting away with with a lot of things. I mean, I've been gutted over travel insurance recently and I was really angry, but there was not much I could do except put a bad comment on the face page of the insurance company and they just deleted it. (laughs) As they do. As they do, yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks, Carol. Oh, thanks, Dan. And that was Coral Winter, who's a retired research chemist and an occasional writer for Greenleaf Weekly. It's 23 minutes past five o'clock. Here till six. Next we'll be talking about Honduras. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. 
Hi, my name is Paul. Uh, this is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Making Waves features the powerful tales of nuclear survivors from Japan and Australia travelling aboard Peace Boat's voyage to five Australian cities this summer. On the 1st of February in Melbourne, join us for a unique gathering of Japanese survivors of the atomic bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, ex-farmers from Fukushima, indigenous survivors of nuclear testing in Australia and the Nobel Peace Prize winning international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. Hear the stories and help us make some noise for Australia and Japan to sign the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. 6pm on February 1 at ACME, Federation Square. Book online at icanw.org forward slash au. ICANN is a 3CR supporter. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Scenes nationwide in Honduras last weekend have been described as fiery and violent as the President Juan Orlando Hernandez was sworn in for the second time. Sandra Cutt, a freelance journalist who has lived and worked in Central America for the past 15 years, most of those in Honduras, was there at the demonstrations in the capital city, Chigolpigalpa. Sandra, can you describe the scene at the weekend in the vicinity of the National Stadium where the swearing-in took place? The inauguration was on Sunday and there have been, you know, months of protests. And so yesterday, on Sunday, sorry, they gathered at a university a ways away from the stadium and marched to the stadium. Um, There was repression almost immediately with gas. Later, people scattered, I mean, around the stadium was... There was intense militarization even the night before. So people scattered into smaller groups and continued in some clashes around the stadium and in the centre throughout the day. What was the main issue for the demonstrators? Well, the main issue is that the protests have been against election fraud, so against the results of the general elections last November. Even international observers from the Organization of American States highlighted serious irregularities that were never addressed. So that's what has sparked this two-month-long crisis um, with protests in the streets all around the country almost every day, severe repression. And so yesterday, 
was the inauguration of the second term of the president in Honduras. Uh, the Constitution here doesn't allow for a re-election, but there's been some manipulation of the judicial system, and there was a ruling that you know, supposedly permitted a second term. So this is a president now who is inaugurated who probably the vast majority of Hondurans don't see as a legitimate president. Sandra, you've lived and worked for more than 15 years in Honduras in neighbouring countries. It has been said that the alleged fraud in that election last year has plunged the country into its worst political crisis since the last military coup in 2009. Is that how you see it? I would say the situation is probably it's different and in some ways it's worse. So the repression that there's been over the past few months in terms of the numbers of people who have been shot by state security forces, the number of people who have been detained and jailed, wounded, those are all much higher than they were in the immediate aftermath of the 2009 coup. There's been a lot of militarization since then. There's been a lot of concentration of power in the executive branch of government by the National Party, which has been in power since 2010. And on, you know, the flip side, the resistance movement that formed in the wake of the coup, you know, eventually formed a political party, and that's part of sort of the main part of the opposition alliance that went up against the president in the election. So on both sides, things have sort of developed out of the situation uh, post-coup in 2009. The trouble is with Honduras, though, that that violence has been going on for many, many years against a whole different groups of citizens in Honduras. Yes, that's definitely true. The homicide rates spiked after the coup. The killings and targeting and threats against, you know, environmentalists, against land rights activists, indigenous activists, journalists, lawyers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Those all spiked after the coup, as well as, you know, especially youth in particular have been on the receiving end of a lot of violence. However, it's, it's important not to just group all of this violence in together. A lot of it, or some of it, is state violence. And so the situation now is, in terms of the dozens of people who have been killed, it's literally military and police forces opening fire on protesters. Talk about the environmentalists who have been targeted over many years. Is this because extractive industries are moving into Honduras or are they already there? They've been there for quite a while. Yeah, they've been here for quite a while. However, some of the processes of privatization and of natural resource concessions and of land privatization and all these sort of different neoliberal processes have really accelerated and advanced um, after the coup. So over the past you know, number of years, there's just been this onslaught of, for example, concessions for hydroelectric dams, and there's oil exploration, you know, there's mining concessions, there's always these different ways that um, lands are being taken over and resources. And so, you know, there have always been movements in Honduras um, especially community, you know, grassroots community-led movements in you know, farming communities, indigenous communities. Those organizations and groups and activists have been increasingly targeted also since the coup. Um, so it's, it's a response and resistance to 
this sort of um, accelerated and extreme process of, of exploitation and extractivism. How strong is the land rights movement? The land rights movement is, much of it sort of is, there is a national movement, but it's particularly strong in certain areas of the country. So this is going back, you know, years when sort of collective lands were um, parceled off and sold, cooperative lands that originally couldn't be broken up and sold. There was, quote-unquote, land modernization legislation. Uh, and this is back in the 90s. And then again in the early 2000s. So there's been sort of the legislated privatization of collective and cooperative lands. And um, that's given rise to land rights movements over the years in different areas of the country and sometimes nationally. And then there's also the indigenous territorial movements that are particularly strong in some regions of the country as well. But yeah, it's a little bit different depending on the region and geography of the country. Can you talk a little bit about the death of Berta a couple of years ago and the continuing repression against Coping? Berta Casares was the co-founder and, at the time of her killing, the coordinator of Coping, which is the civic council of popular and indigenous organizations of Honduras. It has been throughout its history, it was founded in the 90s, one of the most belligerent and active organizations, not even just in terms of indigenous organizations, but in terms of social movement organizations on a national scale. It's very active in always denouncing U.S. militarization, of linking land rights, environmental rights, the role of the U.S. military, et cetera, et cetera. And so Berta was killed nearly two years ago. That was, you know, many, many members of Coquine have been killed and jailed over the years. She was, of course, the most prominent case. And it was within the context of one particular struggle against a hydroelectric dam in that region. This is sort of the western region of Honduras on the Guadalcaste River. And there have been several arrests in the case since then. And even in the arrests that there have been, there are you know, ex-military, people with ties to the military, and people with direct ties to the dam company, DESA. And, you know, Copine and others continue to campaign on her case. There have been a whole bunch of delays in the trial of those who have been arrested, but the main demand remains that the intellectual authors or masterminds behind the crime have not yet been formally accused. Is impunity a big issue in Honduras for the people? Um, yes, it is. I mean, these crimes and also all crimes, so the impunity rate for homicide all over the country usually hovers around 90%. You know, only 10% of all killings are... That's not even in terms of how many convictions are. That's just in terms of, you know, how many cases actually make it to some kind of legal process. So that obviously exacerbates the situation because there is near total impunity for these kinds of crimes, whether they're targeted or not. And I'd imagine that although a lot of people are killed, a lot of people are also in jail. Could you talk about the, the case of Edwin Espinel and just explain who he is? Yeah, absolutely. So Edwin Espinel is a long-time Honduran activist. He's been active in all kinds of resistance movements since the 2009 coup d'etat. 
He's also been a really important ally. I participated alongside Copine and other organizations in the country in their struggles. So in the context of the post-electoral crisis, like I said, there have been dozens of killings, but there have also, even just up to the end of last year, there were more than 1,000 detentions, um, arrests in this context, and um, there have been more this January. And many of those people have been released, but there are dozens of political prisoners. So arrested in the context of these protests against election fraud, and Edwin Espinoza is one of those cases, but he's been targeted for many years. So he's been detained more than one dozen times. His house has been uh, raided by the military police in the past. He's been extremely active and the target of state violence and threats. And due to that reason, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights ordered protective measures for him. But he was arrested on January 19th. So at some of the protests against election fraud, there's been, you know, some property damage that's occurred uh, in the northwest of the country. That was especially, for example, the destruction of um, several police stations in direct response to when state security forces opened fire on people and killed someone. Uh, people would react and go and, um, you know, basically trash the local police station. On January 12th, there was a mass mobilization on um, a march to the presidential palace in Tegucigalpa, the capital. And before they got to the presidential palace, state security forces started tear gassing, um, firing some bullets, etc. And in that context, unknown people broke windows and sort of trashed the lobby of this giant fancy Marriott hotel that's right next to the presidential palace. But in many cases across the country, you know, the people have been targeted with charges in the wake of these acts. In some cases, haven't even been there. In some cases, they're targeted because, you know, they're really recognizable protesters. So Edwin Nacional was arrested on January 19th. He had an initial hearing a few days later inside military facilities. So his case is being overseen by this relatively recently created national jurisdiction court system, um, even though based on the charges that national jurisdiction court shouldn't actually be hearing his case. So he's accused of three property damage related charges, um, and he's also under investigation for terrorism and for criminal association. And, you know, this is something that it's not, you know, the case of Edwin is important in that he's being a target of state intimidation, violence, arrest, due to his activism since 2009. But the actual legal case and charges, you know, isn't unique to Edwin's. There are people around the country, dozens of people, who have been sent to pretrial detention on similar charges and will be in jail awaiting trial, which here could take two or more years. And I'd imagine that the conditions in jail are pretty cruel. Yes, they are. The Honduran prison system, I mean, first of all, more than just usually around half or just over half um, of all inmates have never been convicted of anything. The preliminary hearing by law has to be within two months of the initial hearing, which happened on January 22nd. The thing is, these limits in Honduras don't always happen, and um, many people are in pretrial detention for two or more years before... Uh, their cases actually go to trial. So the likelihood, I mean, there's a campaign for Edwin's release, for the release of all political prisoners in his case because of all of the security concerns 
over the years and the protective measures that he has because of this, you know, state intimidation and violence towards him. People are also demanding his transfer to another facility to be determined by the human rights organization, COFARE, which is providing his legal representation. Um, and there's also a demand to have his case transferred out of this national jurisdiction court system and into the regular court. But yes, as it stands, uh, the judge ordered pretrial detention, and that would be uh, two plus years until his case goes to trial. Is there any danger of deaths in custody for people who are charged like Edwin? Yes, there is, you know, not just for people charged like Edwin, but for um, anybody who's in the, the prison system. You know, there have been two massive fires that have killed hundreds of people. There are deaths in custody, and so that's one of the major concerns, and that's being addressed, and it's also why there's a demand to transfer him out of that particular that particular prison because of the restricted access and because of concerns for his security and well-being. You spoke about the militarisation of the police and the use of military against the people. What's the role of the US in the militarisation in Honduras and how many US bases are there still in Honduras? Right, so yeah, there's been extreme militarization since the 2009 coup. I mean, there's been militarization within the National Police, but also a military police was created, so that's part of the armed forces. It's not part of the National Police Force. And the military police respond particularly directly to the executive branch. Um, that's who's been behind not all, but the majority of the um, incidents of state security forces fatally shooting protesters over these past two months. You know, there's also all kinds of new special forces that are being created. Uh, the United States has supported the training of some of them, funds certain uh, forces within the Honduran police and military. Um, you know, that includes the Marines, the U.S. Southern Command has a base here. So there's the, it's commonly known as Palmerola, but it's the Sotocano Air Force Base. It's about an hour and a half outside of Tegucigalpa. And so the U.S. Southern Command of the military, its Joint Task Force Bravo is stationed there. Um, of all the U.S. Southern Command, which deals with Latin America, their units and components are all based in the U.S. except for two. So one of them is at the naval base, is Joint Task Force in Guantanamo, related to Guantanamo, obviously, and the other one is Joint Task Force Bravo. So this is the main base in this region and there are no longer any U.S. Southern Command bases in South America. So Honduras has always been a really key ally to the United States. During the 80s, there were counterinsurgency operations, you know, in all of the neighboring countries. Most of those were out of here. A lot of the training was out of here. That was controlled by the United States. There are other bases. The U.S. calls them forward operating locations, um, but there are a few around Honduras, and yeah, so all kinds of U.S. forces. Some are stationed here all the time at the Sotocano base. Others, including military, including special forces, and including the DEA, often use these different locations around Honduras for their operations, not just in the country, but in the whole region. Is it just the strategic position of Honduras that makes it so important to the U.S.? Yes, also like at this point, the fact that this is sort of the military hub and has been for decades within the region, 
And so for Central America, you know, Honduras has a long Caribbean coast. There's also access to the Caribbean. The Caribbean coast of South America, which obviously includes Venezuela, isn't really that far away. So, yeah, it is, part of it is the um, strategic positioning, but that's also based on the history of U.S. intervention and militarization within Latin America um, and the ongoing U.S. military presence in Honduras. You've spoken about the activism for land rights, for environmental protection, for labour rights, I'd imagine, also. What about poverty, unemployment and the rights of workers in Honduras? I'm not sure what the unemployment rate is, but it's incredibly high. Um, A lot of people work in the informal sector. Formal employment is sort of the jobs are few and far between. Um, many of the jobs that there are are, you know, low pay, not great conditions, like in the textile factories, more commonly known as sweatshops, um, is a big industry in Honduras. Also, obviously, you know, agricultural crops, African palm, melons, bananas, sugarcane, pineapples, etc. So, yeah, that's, you know, sort of a combination of all of this is one of the reasons that so many youth, so many mothers, so many children, so many families have been fleeing the country over the years, but particularly in the last few years, because there are no opportunities for youth, there's a lot of state violence against youth, and the general living conditions in Honduras, sort of in all facets of life, are pretty dismal. Is it also a very precarious place for LGBT people? Yes, it is. There's a very high rate of that also spiked after the coup. It's also worth noting that um, LGBTQ organizations were, in many cases, very active participants in the resistance to the 2009 coup and, you know, have made these issues for themselves within national social movements and to some extent within the um, opposition political parties. So there have been many targeted killings, particularly of gay men and of trans women, um, over the years, and yeah, people's main struggle sometimes is actually just survival in the country. Now that the president has been inaugurated for the second time, where will the struggle go from here? Um, that sort of remains to be seen in some ways. The inauguration was just on Sunday. It definitely will continue. The Opposition Alliance and supporters all over the country, social movement organizations, do not recognize this presidency as legitimate and that's something that happened after the 2009 coup as well so you basically had very little like governability in the country because people didn't recognize the government i'm sure there will be ongoing protests because there has been so much repression and so many killings many of the protests have sort of become smaller and a little bit less frequent over the past well just in great part due to fear but i'm sure actions will continue and a little bit too early to say right now exactly in what form the opposition is going to take over the next while, but I'm sure people, in terms of the party structure, in terms of social movements, will be regrouping and um, developing their strategies for the next four years. Can you talk about the Honduras Solidarity Network? So I work as a freelance journalist, but the Honduras Solidarity Network is dozens of organizations, especially in the U.S., but also in Canada, formed the network in the wake of the 2009 coup. Um, Some of them had done long-term work with different 
Cooking, for example, other social movement organizations for years before, and many others got involved after the coup, particularly because of the U.S. role in the country. So they coordinate actions, lobbying in D.C., working on specific campaigns, likely the case of Edwin Espinal and other political prisoners. Yeah, so it's a pretty active network. Do they have any successes? Definitely in terms of providing accompaniment, documentation, getting the word out, also lobbying Congress members. You know, there have been many statements by dozens of people from the U.S. Congress and in the Senate in terms of human rights violations in the country. You know, the murder of Bessa Kassadish from Kopin is a big case, and I'm sure the international pressure is one of the reasons why there is, you know, even being any arrests at all that, you know, do include people tied to the hydroelectric dam company in the military. You know, there have also been human rights restrictions placed on some security aid from the U.S. to uh, Honduran security forces. And, you know, that's also a success of all the people within the U.S. and beyond who have been working on those issues for a really long time. Um, however, so certain portion of the U.S. financial aid to certain security forces that have been implicated in, you know, great human rights violations, that money is withheld. And then the State Department has to certify that Honduras is, you know, advancing in terms of human rights, combating corruption and impunity, et cetera. And the latest certification that the U.S. State Department did of those conditions was on November 28th. So November 26th was the general elections in Honduras. It became very clear within, you know, by November 28th, it was very clear that there were strong indications of election fraud. So the U.S. certified, you know, that human rights were improving in Honduras and they could release the rest of the security funding. And literally two days after they did that were the, um, the killings began of state security forces against protesters, people who were protesting election fraud. Finally, Sandra, your position in Honduras as a freelance journalist. I'd imagine journalists are are targeted as a group in Honduras. Um, Yes, that's definitely true. Obviously, there have been, you know, foreign correspondents and foreign journalists here covering the elections, the ensuing protests, um, the inauguration, and lots of protests against that um, this past Sunday. But generally... There are next to no foreign correspondents or, you know, international journalists based in the country. Also, you know, their status as foreigners often might be sort of a deterrent. It's hard to know because almost nobody is ever actually based here. But Honduran journalists face an incredible amount of violence and threats. Over 60 journalists and media workers have been killed in the past, I think that's the past decade, and, you know, there have also been, there's been a lot of targeting of journalists over the past two months. So journalists from largely Honduran media, also Honduran correspondents for international media, have been beaten, injured, tear gassed, threatened, severely beaten by military police, one of the most prominent sort of TV stations that's been covering and has taken a stance you know, on the side of the opposition. They're broadcast journalists and camera people have been openly beaten, you know, with they're clearly journalists, they clearly identify themselves as journalists. There have been several attacks really targeting people who have been covering the opposition and covering protests 
just even in the past two months. Is there a, a petition or a campaign to release those who were imprisoned following the demonstrations in the last couple of weeks, months? There is. I mean, you know, even just on Sunday with the protests around the country, arrest and pretrial detention of prisoners in the context of these protests is something that's ongoing. So even just on Sunday during the protests all around the country against the inauguration of um, the president's second term, there were arrests in at least six different places around the country. People have been campaigning. You know, the political prisoners issue is something that is raised at all these different protests, as well as obviously the state killings of protesters. Um, in the specific case of Edwin Espinal, there is a campaign that's just starting for his immediate release and that of all political prisoners in Honduras in its early stages, but that will, it was launched by the Honduras Solidarity Network. And I'm sure more campaigns and more information about all the different cases around the country will definitely be coming out over the next while. People can also find the information um, by looking up the Honduras Solidarity Network and they'll be able to get to it. Thanks so much, Sandra. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sandra Cuffbear from um, a freelance journalist in the United States. But I'll just let you know that um, Edwin is in prison in pretty dire situation in Honduras and of course he's not the only one in prison. Many, many people were arrested after the demonstrations against the the fraud of the election last November when the, the inauguration took place in the capital city of Honduras over the weekend. Um, Honduran Solidarity Network is the place to look to find out how you can get involved in assisting with the, the people in Honduras who are facing a lot of violence, a lot of violence from the police, from the militarised police there. And it, when you look at it, you find out that the the role of the US in that country is, is huge. Bases everywhere, keeping a track on not only Honduras but all the other places in that in that area, particularly in Cuba and Venezuela. So is there any way you can help? Honduran Solidarity Network. Making Waves features the powerful tales of nuclear survivors from Japan and Australia travelling aboard Peace Boat's voyage to five Australian cities this summer. On the 1st of February in Melbourne, join us for a unique gathering of Japanese survivors of the atomic bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, ex-farmers from Fukushima, indigenous survivors of nuclear testing in Australia and the Nobel Peace Prize winning international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. Hear the stories and help us make some noise for Australia and Japan to sign the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. 6pm on February 1 at ACME, Federation Square. Book online at icanw.org forward slash au. ICANN is a 3CR supporter. It's coming up to quarter to six and to fill up the time until six o'clock, I'll play a couple of songs. Something a little bit different for Tuesday home time.
Tuesday Home Time. Just to let you know that next week, if you can remember what he sounds like, Mr Kevin Healy is back on deck next Tuesday. I think it's six or seven weeks he's had to prepare himself for next week and he's back on his own program City Limits next Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock. So that's a treat for you twice next week, or actually three times, because you can also hear him Solidarity Breakfast on Saturday. But earlier in the week, it's Tuesday Home Time with Mr Kevin Healy, and then it's Kevin Healy with Friends on Wednesday morning with City Limits. I'll play you another couple of messages, and then a final song, and then it's time for... Done by law. <laughs> 